The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Now, half of us on this side of the aisle just spent four years, <clears throat> four years, when we were the majority and we had a president of our party asking us to do what they're trying to do tonight. And we had a one word answer No. No. We're not going to fracture the institution to achieve some short-term advantage. On this vote, the A's are 52, the nays are 48. The decision of the chair stands as the judgment of the Senate. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Senator Mitch McConnell on the filibuster, actually a double defeat for the Democrats last night. We'll look at that in a couple of minutes. Good afternoon, John Harper in for Drew Mariani today. And we'll get to the news in Washington and, of course, give you a preview of the 49th annual March for Life going live to D.C. in just a little while. But there's news this afternoon about the church. It's an investigation into child abuse claims in the German Catholic Church that reveals that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI knew about the abuse, but didn't take any action when he was Archbishop of Munich. The inquest into the German Catholic Church has found that Pope Benedict, then called Joseph Ratzinger, was told about the facts of four separate cases of child sexual abuse and that he allowed the alleged perpetrators to remain active in church roles. Two of the cases of abuse, the report says, were committed during Ratzinger's tenure as Archbishop of Munich. A Vatican statement released this morning that did not mention Benedict said the Holy See would evaluate the full report and confirmed its path to protect the little ones. That's ABC's Megan Williams reporting from Rome. The church commissioned that investigation that spans the time frame from 1945 through 2019. Pope Benedict XVI previously has denied any knowledge of that abuse. It's a story that will continue to follow here at Relevant Radio. And of course, President Biden begins his second year in office today. Yesterday's news conference, did you see that? It continues to make headlines today, especially about the potential Russian invasion of the Ukraine. The president referred to that as a minor incursion. Those were his words at yesterday's news conference. Today, Mr. Biden clarified the U.S. stance on Russia. I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. It will be met with severe and coordinated economic response that I've discussed in detail with our allies, as well as laid out very clearly for President Putin. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Berlin right now. He's meeting with French and British ministers. The goal that that we share was to seek a diplomatic path to de-escalate tensions caused by Russia's massing of troops uh, along Ukraine's borders, to deter and prevent a further Russian invasion or destabilization of Ukraine. And, of course, the other big news coming from Washington is the twin defeat for Democrats. We're talking about after a day of debate, voting rights bill blocked in the Senate. And there was also the failure to overcome a Republican blockade to change the filibuster rules. Two Democrats joined the Republicans in that defeat. One of those Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. We're going to break the rules to change the rules. We'll make up new rules as we go along, invite them, ourselves to the future majorities to disregard the rule book at will. No rule of the Senate can withstand the act of a willful majority. Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Democrats used the filibuster multiple times to delay the CARES Act, kill Senator Tim Scott's police reform bill, block bipartisan protections 
for unborn children. This morning on NBC's Today Show, Vice President Kamala Harris said Democrats will continue the fight for voters' rights. When we look at laws that have been passed that make it illegal to give people who are standing in line to vote food and water, we know this is a violation of the spirit that we we hold dear about our democracy in terms of the importance of everyone's right to vote and every eligible American's right to vote. Now, with those twin setbacks for the Democrats on both voting rights and the filibuster, what are the options left? Let's examine that now here on the Drew Mariani Show. Dr. Daniel Mark is an assistant professor of political science at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. Dr. Mark also teaches political theory, philosophy of law, American government, and politics and religion. He's past chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and is currently a senior fellow for the Religious Freedom Institute's North American Action Team. Dr. Mark, welcome back to Relevant Radio. It's good to have you on. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Democrats have both majorities in the Houses of Congress. Um, Overcoming a filibuster requires cloture. That's the supermajority, 60 votes to debate uh, and a vote on voters' rights bill in the Senate. So that 60 vote is there. you got 50-50 party lines. Vice President Harris would be the 51st vote breaking the tie. But you're still 10 votes short of cloture because of the filibuster. We're seeing a lot of political physics here, aren't we? It's an unstoppable force meeting an apparently immovable object. Yes, and and I wouldn't put that as a bad thing necessarily. I yeah. think that our part of the part of the design of our republic uh, was to ensure deliberation, not just in the sense of discussion, but to move deliberately, carefully, slowly. And of course, the filibuster isn't part of that original constitution design, constitutional design, but it's a, a very long-standing tradition. You know, it, one way to put it is that the gridlock in our system is a feature, not a bug, and. The idea that we won't have transient majorities making sweeping Mm -hmm. changes is, by some light, something that has really benefited our country over the years, right? The the idea that we don't swing wildly from one pole to the other in our our legislation is maybe a great benefit to the United States. And the idea um, that we should just throw this out because we are so close to passing transformative legislation, you know, not necessarily for the better, is... It's probably misguided. And some history here. The embryonic stages of the filibuster really go back to Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and the framers that uh, framers that shaped some of the rules of debate, right? Sure. I mean, there are so many things that the the, the very idea that we have a bicameral legislature, we have a House and a Senate, the idea that they need to agree, the idea that they need the agreement of the president as well, who has to sign his name to the bill. There are so many features in our system, and not to mention the, you know, the current pr- legislative process for, for getting something passed into law, which has so many steps going through committees and so forth. Uh, and, and all of this is a way of ensuring that, or, or doing our best to ensure that there is something beyond a bare partisan majority making decisions. Right? We don't have a parliamentary system where, like in England, you know, as long as the government has 50 percent plus one, they right. can pass, you know, they can pass whatever they want. And this is this is a system that's designed to make sure that things move carefully and slowly. And like I said, I mean, what, everyone can be his own judge of history, but that seems to me to be something that has benefited us. And Dr. Mark, as we talk about how the filibuster has evolved over time, how did the supermajority come to be? Uh, 
Well, uh, the, each, each house, uh, each house of Congress, meaning the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, is entitled to make its own rules. And there are, I mean, r- rules that you know the average American, even experts like myself, might might not be aware of if you're not watching things carefully. Uh, and so that this is a rule that the Senate has adopted for itself, and that's the reason why the, the current debate we're having now is that the Senate can also change that rule by itself. And this happened within very recent memory. Uh, there was a special rule change. Uh, uh, eliminating the filibuster for the confirmation of judges for of federal judges um that you know, so you know the parties had been um uh the parties had been using this increasingly in in recent years and the democrats decided they didn't want the republicans to be able to block judges anymore while the republicans are in a minority in the senate and then the the democrats voted um to get rid of that rule for that specific area uh, of confirmations and then Mitch McConnell said to the Democrats, that you're going to regret this because one day you're going to be in the minority. And right. then sure enough, you know, things turn around and Trump is president and suddenly there are appointments uh, that they really don't like um, that they can't stop at, at the federal level in the federal judiciary. And, you know, it's, there's a real lesson here for us. Uh, you know, there was uh, probably a lot of your listeners know the Babylon Bee. There was a, a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a satire site um, that had a good headline uh, the other day about uh, Chuck Schumer, like accidentally reading his speech against the filibuster. Uh, against eliminating the filibuster from two right. years ago, right? The kind of thing where so and the, where there's a lesson here about it, it is, this isn't just debate about this isn't just is the filibuster good or is the filibuster part of a broken system. Right. Uh, it's about whether there is any good faith left in our politics. The idea that politicians would make different arguments about this at, you know, the, the on the turn of a dime, depending on what serves their narrow partisan interest in that particular moment is a real sign of the dysfunction in our politics. And maybe it's shared by both sides. Maybe it isn't. Again, everyone can be his own uh, own judge on that. And also, I mean, the thing that I mentioned about the judiciary just shows how, how short-sighted the whole thing is, right? So what are they going to do? Yeah. They're going to eliminate the filibuster so they pass this, this uh, quote-unquote voting, voting rights legislation. What happens, let's say, in 2022 if a Republican, gets, a Republican majority gets elected in the Senate? What do they think the result of that is going to be? Now, they've still got a Democratic president, but maybe they won't after, tw- after the 2024 election. Um, and so so it's really, you know, it, 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 it's 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 such an interesting debate, even for those who don't care about the filibuster itself, because of what it represents about the problems we're dealing with, about short sightedness in our politics, about bad faith in our politics. You know, just saying whatever is expedient at the moment and not thinking about the long term consequences, not thinking about how it erodes the ability of politicians from both sides of the aisle to work together and so on. And so it's really an issue worth watching. You have some time, Dr. Mark. We'll go on a scavenger hunt for that good faith in Washington, D.C. as we talk about uh, the filibuster <laughs> and what uh, and what becomes of it. Dr. Daniel Mark, an assistant professor of political science at Villanova University here on the Drew Mariani Show. Would you and I be having this conversation right now if there wasn't the 24-7 cable news cycle? Oh, gosh. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and I think that... Um, uh, this is answered in part by uh, Yuval Levin. He's you know, uh, one of the one of the great um, intellects on the right, a great uh, conservative thinker and leader, and both 
I guess, political philosophy and policy. And he's talked about the way um, we've had some breakdown in our institutions that turn all of politics into a performance. So, for example, he'll point to the fact that um, that things that go on in committee are now broadcast on television, whereas previously would have been private or, you know, even maybe, you know, on the floor of Congress itself. Hard to see rolling that back. But he says at that point, that point that everything is on TV and nothing gets happened, nothing happens, quote unquote, in secret, even though that sounds nefarious, it means that every issue is an opportunity for the politicians to perform on a stage. And, you know, and obviously 24-7 cable news amplifies that and it makes it much more difficult uh, for people to compromise. You know, it's, it's funny in connecting to the filibuster issue, you know, some people say part of the reason you have people like Manchin and Cinema opposing the filibuster, you know, when they speak, of course, they're speaking from high-minded principles, but part of it is that the filibuster helps them avoid having to take votes on bills that would get them, that would that would make sure they lose their next election, right? Sure. Because they don't actually want, they, they can't as politicians endorse every aspect of the progressive agenda. And as long as the Republicans filibuster the bill, they don't have to be that deciding vote that gets that bill, you know, passed into law. Um, and so... Um, it's it's also you know there's the there's the there's the motivations where people think about what's really best for the common good and then there's the what's going to get me elected and so on and so forth and the more everything they do is on TV the more they have to think about how everything looks as opposed to you know what the real consequences are for for America and for people's for real people's lives. As we talk about the filibuster and the future of what's going on in that political theater up on Capitol Hill with Dr. Daniel Mark, you can join the conversation here on the Drew Mariani Show. Our number is 888-914-9149, 914 Where is the incentive for any negotiation, Dr. Mark, among lawmakers from both parties? On the filibuster in particular, on on everything? Well, you know, I, it just seems on everything because we just, you know, we hit this gridlock. It's like, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. It's black and white. And we always refer back to the sainted days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan enjoying a cocktail <laughs> after hours. After Yeah, they did the political theater as well, but there was compromise. And these guys are pros. Yeah. They're good people. They understand the common good. So, what you know, so where, where do we get some negotiation? Where do we get compromise? I mean, yeah, it seems that there's less and less of that. Uh, I, I mean, part of it, you know, the I guess the canned answer is that it's going to come from the voters, right? Voters have to choose who they want. Do they do they want people who are going to compromise? Do they want people who are not going to compromise. Now, now I do want to qualify that, and maybe this isn't the answer you're looking for, but you know, since we're having a fun, open conversation, I don't want to just endorse compromise per se either, right? Compromise mm-hmm. isn't itself. I mean, compromise is essential for living together in a diverse, pluralistic society like. Hours and really any group of people, you know, uh, any group larger than one, you know, you really do need uh, <laughs> right. com- you, re- you really do need compromise to make it work. So I don't. So compromise, of course, um, is is connected to many important virtues. But it's also not the case that compromise is good just because it's a compromise, right? There are lots of things. I mean, give, revealing my own partisan biases, I guess there are lots of things that the Democratic Party wants to do today where I'm not really interested um, in seeing the Republican Party compromise with them on mm-hmm. those kinds of things, right? I, I think so. I think actually, and maybe this is just how messed up things are, is that even before we can get to compromising, we have to get back to 
treating each other, not attributing the worst motives to other sides, to recognizing there are good faith arguments on both sides, even when we disagree, which is to say we have to get to the stage of discussion before we get to the stage of compromise. And it doesn't look like that. You know, look what's going on in society. You know, cancel culture is cliche, of course, but just, you know, all, all the people who can't talk to each other anymore, who can't be friends on social media anymore because they disagree, right? That's a bad place to be. And so I would say the priority actually isn't to isn't to ask how do we get to the point where we can compromise it's just how do we get to the point where we can just talk and respect each other and and that's you know obviously a big problem maybe we should remove the television cameras remember being blessed having a conversation with the senate chaplain who said you know there's more compromise that goes on here than meets the eye when the cameras go on when they're on c-span when they know they've gotten booked for a cable news show, that's when the theater starts. He said, but there actually is business that actually takes place here. And, you know, these so-called mortal enemies that we see on the cable news cycle are actually talking to each other. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, cable news and social media, all these things just uh, increase the incentives for politicians to be performing all the time, right? And right. So as, as politicians who see their primary role as promoting their own brand and, you know, and so they're, they're influencers too, just political instead of social or whatever. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're out there spending more time and more energy promoting their own brand than, you know, figuring out either how to represent their constituents or how to serve the common good and so on. And you're right. The more the more public every single thing they do is, you know, and, and it is tough. I don't want to, you know, I like as a professor, I like to make sure we have a lot of nuance in here. Of course, transparency is good and accountability is good. There, are, of course, there are lots of problems with things going on behind closed doors. You know, you could have, you know, all these voters who vote politicians in, and then they're disappointed to find out that in some uh, smoke-filled back room, the politicians kind of, you know, compromised as it were. Right? They gave in on all the things the voters elected them to do in the first place. And that's no good either. So I don't, you know, it's not that there's a simple solution and say, let them go back to, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan having a drink right. together and, and settling the matter. Um, but at the same time, I think I, I know that we, despite all our partisan divisions, we can agree um, that the current state of affairs is not healthy, not productive, and is not leading us anywhere good. Dr. Daniel Mark is with us for talking about the filibuster, which of course has been making news all along on Capitol Hill, a defeat for the Democrats last night on Capitol Hill. Dr. Daniel Mark, assistant professor of political science at Villanova University. I'm sure you saw the research. It just came out a couple of days ago looking at the next generations of voters, those very people that are in front of you in a classroom at Villanova University, and they are decidedly blue instead of red by a very large margin. So when you're at Villanova University and you are facing this next generation of voters and they see the political theater that's happening on Capitol Hill, what do they say about the men and women who are up there? <laughs> we, uh, I'm trying to do education in my classroom, and so uh, we don't. We, you may be surprised that we don't spend a lot. And this maybe make, maybe makes me the exception in academia. Um, we don't spend a lot of time having bitter partisan battles uh, in the classroom. You know, we're reading uh, Plato and we're reading Blackstone, and uh, we're we're trying to. I, I'm trying to in a way, and of course, we always bring you know current uh, examples to, um, to to liven things up. Um, but but I actually see my role as as taking a step back 
trying to lower the temperature and, and like I said, do the thing. You know, I mean, the, there's all course the cliche of, you know, they have to learn how to think critically. But it's, it's, right. it's not just that. They have to learn what they have to learn. I want them to be able to think for themselves. I don't want to tell them what to think. And so, um, so I think that the most important thing that we can do as educators um, is help them to see the best arguments on every side of an issue, you know, which, which involves intellect. It involves empathy. Uh, it involves recognizing that mm. we have to live together with these people one way or another. And so the first step is to try to understand. And also, I have to say, you know, for my own interest, to get them to know the best arguments on their own side. You know, I think a lot of the arguments um, that my side, quote unquote, has lost is because we didn't have something good to say. You know, there have been a right. lot of social changes in our country over the past decades. And I think, frankly, a lot of it is because we didn't mount a good argument. I don't mean because we weren't right, but because we didn't mount a good argument. And so, you know, I, I want to challenge the students who agree with me as much as I want to challenge the students who disagree with me, not that they know in class whether they agree with me or disagree with me anyway, because mm -hmm. I don't tell them, but, um, uh, you know, but it's really, um, and so, um, so I don't have a great answer as far as what they're really saying, but, you know, it's, a, it's what you, insofar as we do have these discussions, it's what you'd expect. You know, there's a combination of, on one hand, they will, every single one of them will sit there when I ask, what's the worst problem facing our country today? You know, 90% of the students will say something like polarization or something like that. Right. On the other hand, when we actually get into the issues, they are embodiments of the very polarization um, that they're decrying. You know, they'll give the, they'll give the same speech that you'd see their congressman, uh, you know, give on C-SPAN about, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever it is, the masks or the vaccines or, or, or what so we've seen on social media. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're young enough still to embody all the contradictions of, on one hand, I don't like what's going on in Washington or on social media. On the other hand, I'm a complete replica of what's going on in Washington and on social media. One more um, question so, about the filibuster. Know, Should we yeah. go back to the talking filibuster? Now, that was entertainment. Oh, that's fun. That's that's good. <laughs> that, that talking about good media clips, right? That makes yeah. for that makes for good media. It does. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I, it, to take the question seriously, I mean, it is fair to say that we have to impose a real cost on the people who want to invoke this not entirely democratic procedure, right? It does allow a minority to block the will of the majority, and that's a you know politically philosophically complicated thing. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, that's probably also a waste of time. So yeah. if it has the same result, um, but it's fun. It's fun. It has been fun to look at things that sometimes are fun, sometimes are not so fun or not so funny that happened up on Capitol Hill this morning at 7 a.m. Mass. And I'm sure in your parish as well, we pray to the Holy Spirit to guide those leaders from our own community all the way up to Capitol Hill as we look at the filibuster and what's happening in the next chapter in this first day of Joe Biden's second year in office. Dr. Daniel Mark is an assistant professor of political science at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. Dr. Mark, thanks for a great conversation. Thank you. So good to be with you. We'll go live to Washington later on the Drew Mariani Show to give you a preview of the 49th Annual March for Life. And Drew praised the Divine Mercy Chaplet at the top of the hour. It's John Harper for Drew here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. 
John Harper for Drew on the eve of the 49th annual March for Life. We'll have live coverage from Washington, D.C. all through the day tomorrow. Matt Beardsley is on the ground right now in Washington, D.C. We'll go live to him coming up in the next hour after we pray the chaplet of divine mercy. And by the way, have you signed up for the hashtag Fast for Life? We have nearly 6,000 of you. Thanks be to God who have signed up for the Fast for Life. And uh, those are just great numbers. Julie from Attleboro, Massachusetts said she's not going to have any tea tomorrow, nothing sweet, and we'll be adding prayer. That's a way to virtually participate in the 49th annual March for Life. Uh, Karen from Buffalo, New York, says that she is going to refrain from going to all the news websites, also not going to social media as well. Eileen from Schenectady, New York, is saying, I'm only going to have one meal tomorrow on Friday. So hashtag Fast for Life in solidarity with the March for Life, our hashtag Fast for Life campaign. You can sign up right now. Tell us how you plan to pray and sacrifice for the unborn. You can do that right now at RelevantRadio.com slash fast. That's RelevantRadio.com slash fast. And there's something extra this year with the Relevant Radio hashtag Fast for Life campaign. And along with our friends at Solidarity HealthShare, who have been proud partners with us in the Fast for Life campaign and the March for Life coverage from Washington, D.C., they're offering you a hashtag Fast for Life free bonus ebook. It's called The Choice is Love. I, download, I downloaded mine as I uh, signed up to uh, Fast for Life uh, earlier in the week, and you can do that right now at RelevantRadio.com. And we'll go live to Washington coming up in the next hour here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Later on today, we're going to talk about the supply chain. Supply chain issues, it's absolutely crazy what's out there and what's not out there with supply chain issues. Things like, and maybe you're seeing this on your store shelves, Cat and dog food, not there. The dry stuff, just not there. Cream, half and half. It was in the supermarket yesterday, and I was just going through, uh, and I don't normally buy crackers, but I was just going down that aisle, and I'm saying, what happened to all the crackers? And all the Pepperidge Farm products are just gone off the shelves. There's nothing there, and there's no cream cheese. In fact, I heard somebody on the radio yesterday in Wisconsin, the Dairyland state, who can't get cream cheese. Now think about that. No dairy products in Wisconsin on the store shelves. It doesn't make any sense. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. And it's obviously it's impacting the economy. You know because prices are up in the supermarket and you simply just can't get stuff. So it's supply and demand. NBC did an interesting story yesterday connected with uh, President Biden's beginning of his second year in office and also some of the supply chain issues and how they're really affecting the pocketbooks of you and me. Bruce Vine has been building houses for 24 years right here in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, a blue-collar community at one-time Democratic stronghold that turned red in 2016. But now, with prices up 7% in the past year, his construction business is facing unprecedented challenges. How much has inflation hit you? Basically, everything's doubled. Plus, there's a long list of supplies he can barely get his hands on. Bathtubs, showers, vanities. Everything. Yep. Those higher prices are felt in his own home as well. You guys have a 14-year-old at home. He eats everything he can inside the house. So when you go grocery shopping and you look at that receipt now, it's painful. It's almost $400. Bruce and Jennifer both voted for President Obama, then for President Trump. One year into a Biden presidency, they aren't happy. To fill my car in the beginning, it was $30. Now it's 70 Where do you point the finger? The Biden administration. 
Yeah, that's uh, and as you you probably feel the same way, and we're going to talk about that later on in the Drew Mariani show today because uh, obviously the supply chain issues are all hitting us in the pocketbook and inflation. Yeah, you know how much more a trip to the supermarket costs. We'll talk about that coming up a little bit later here on the Drew Mariani show. How many times do you turn on a daytime talk show? And there is somebody on there who is complaining, especially, you know, you get to a Dr. Phil show or any of these kind of quote unquote self-help gurus who are on television. And there's always someone who's complaining about how they were raised and saying, if I were only in a better situation, if I only had a different family situation, whatever it is, here's a question. This is really a question of ethics and probably not too far removed from what you might see on a daytime talk show. Would you want to change the genes that you got from your parents? Now, you're probably looking at the smart speaker of the radio now saying, come on, how can I possibly do that? The science is out there for editing our own genes. Just when you thought it couldn't get any crazier, it's been out there, as a matter of fact, for a number of years. Father Tad Baholchik is a member of our family here at Relevant Radio. He's the director of education at the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Also the author of a column called Making Sense Out of Bioethics. And you see that in a number of Catholic publications. Father Tad, welcome back to Relevant Radio. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. How far are we going to go with this? Well, you know, we have actually crossed the Rubicon. I think people tend to forget that this has already happened in China. Uh, There were two children that were born that a scientist introduced some genetic changes into their genes, and those changes are heritable, which means that when those kids grow up and have children of their own, those changes will be uh, passed on to their progeny. So this is something that has already occurred, and I think the bigger question here is, will this move into mainstream? And I mean, I don't doubt that it will, but the question is, quickly, or do we have a little bit of uh, some time here in which we can kind of hold things back and, you know, choose more intelligently how to proceed? Making changes to our own genes that are permanent and heritable that can be transmitted to our children. This is a major, major line uh, that should not be crossed without, you know, complete clarity about what we're doing. And unfortunately, I don't think that clarity exists uh, broadly in society. This is admittedly a big wide shot here. We see that the fastest growing area of uh, medical doctors is in plastic surgery. We want to change the way we look. Let's widen that shot a little bit more. Look at the college cheating scandal. These celebrities who spend huge money to just make sure that their kids have this great cachet and get into a great college. So if you think the slope isn't so slippery, it's pretty slippery right now, and it's pretty steep, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, there are other examples, John, that you could add to that. Uh, For example, in India and China, they will do testing early on to find out the sex of the baby and eliminate the female babies. And this can be done even while you do in vitro fertilization so that the embryo is checked and only the male embryos are implanted. So the notion that you can kind of choose the characteristics that you want your kids to have goes right down to that most basic level. 
Let me play devil's advocate here with Father Tad Paholczyk as we talk about editing our own genes. It is happening, certainly in laboratories, it is happening in some cultures. Uh, We're living here in a pandemic. We pray every day to Our Lady of Good Health for an end to the pandemic. If we could rewrite the normal gene process so people could better fight off infectious diseases, what are the ethics of that? Well, the ethics really do depend first on the question of if you make those changes, will they be transmitted to your children? So let's just say you know somebody who has a rare type of cancer and you can go in and do something just to their bone marrow that will fix their cancer. And then when they die, it's kind of end of story. That's one type of gene therapy that really doesn't raise problems. But if you go in and you make changes in somebody's genes, which then are passed on to the children, there's, there's a much more complicated series of concerns, even if you're doing it putatively for therapeutic reasons, because genes oftentimes don't have a single effect. And we don't always know when you're talking about development of a new human being exactly how a particular gene plays out, when it's turned on, when it's turned off, how it's going to affect the subsequent development of that individual. So you're, you're sort of rolling the dice and playing an experiment here with the next generation when you start introducing changes that can be handed down to your children. So even if it's being done for those supposed reasons of improving health or even eliminating a particular disease, the key point here is that there has to be exhaustive, extensive work done first in animal models, and that includes uh, in primates, non-human primates like baboons and, and so on. That, that's where you need to do the pilot work. With Father Tad Paholczyk, we're talking about what is going on right now in our society around the world, and that is the editing of genes and, of course, the ethics of that. You can join our conversation with Father Tad at 888-914-914-9888-914-9149. You have a doctorate in neuroscience from Yale University, Father Tad. You have been in these labs. At what point in time do ethics, does an ethical conversation come up? when the research is progressing as fast as it is on issues like editing your own genes? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question, and I would say it's also a particularly challenging question in the sense that we have to have a kind of ethical discussion where it's not simply the foxes guarding the hen house. And that's been part of the problem, that scientists will sometimes imagine that they can work out the ethics as they go along according to what suits or is convenient to their experimental interests. And that ends up being very self-serving and can result in steps that are, um, that are unjust, whether it's directed towards human embryos, whether it's directed towards some of these other bigger questions that we're discussing about transmitting changes in genes to the next generation. So, there needs to be a mechanism in which out those outside of science can affect and inform that discussion among the scientists. And I think this has been a very hard thing to really make it happen in the sense that a lot of times if you have the National Academy of Sciences or some of these other 
well-known scientific institutions, they will set out to discuss ethics, for example, about gene editing, Mm -hmm. and it'll be kind of a hand-picked committee of people who think mostly alike. And that raises significant concerns. And I would say many times there will even be the risk that those who come from a clear and well-articulated religious tradition, such as the Catholic Church, that those individuals would not be invited to participate. Do scientists talk about what they're doing, and that's man taking the place of the Creator? Um, I think that depends. Some scientists might put it into that type of a framework. Others would not. Uh, There's a lot that one can discuss without necessarily even going in the direction of mentioning the Creator. And I think even on that level, there still remain there remains a a rather impoverished type of discussion that often occurs around the ethics. So, you know, there's what we call the natural law awareness of good and evil that all of us are born with, whether we're religious or not. Everybody knows that cheating on your wife is wrong. Everybody knows that killing your neighbor is wrong. These are kinds of things that have a self-evident character. And in many of the areas of bioethics, really most areas, There is also a natural law awareness of where those lines are, but there can be competing interests that make us start to say, well, the lines look fuzzy, and well, I'm not sure. Everything's kind of gray here, isn't it? And to play those kinds of games. So um, I think the challenge here is to launch a discussion that involves enough disinterested individuals, individuals from outside the field of expertise, uh, and has a good dialogue, you know, with those who are actually engaged in the work of uh, crossing some of these lines. You talk about those gray areas. What what are some of the conversations in those gray areas that uh, perhaps have some of these scientists putting ethics aside, putting the natural law aside? How do they justify that? You've heard those conversations. Well, I think the the issue of what's gray and what's not. Uh, at the end of the day, the the lines are clear. There are not there is not a huge amount of gray actually that's present. But the problem is it requires due diligence. You've got to spend some time looking at this, thinking it through, reflecting on the real goods that are at stake, and not just saying, "Hey, what's going to be the thing that's going to push our stock higher?" on the stock market. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're coming at it from the wrong angle, where the ethics are kind of a a subsidiary consideration to other things that you're actually interested on the first level, then everything's going to look very gray. And that's part of the challenge here is to be sure that there is a clarity of motives and that the ethics have a real primacy, a first position in these kinds of discussions. And I'm afraid they often don't. And yet people will insist, oh, yes, I'm very concerned that we do things the right way. But what that really means is they don't want anything to break out into the public sphere that would become widely known in the media and that would cause scandal and cause, you know, again, financial problems, stocks to tank, etc. It's more of a practical concern than one that really is saying, what is the truth of the matter here? with respect to the question of protecting human beings and doing our research and medical 
studies in a manner that is always entirely uh, non-violating of the human person, but respecting that human person in all their dimensions. And of course, more to put under the umbrella of life on this eve of the 49th annual March for Life with Father Chad Paholchik as we're trying to make sense of bioethics for you today, talking about editing our own genes that's happening already right now. The ethics of that and how slippery is that slope? We're here at 888 John Harper for Drew Mariani, and we'll continue with Father Tad next here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Trying to stay up on the headlines? The Drew Mariani Show is here for you. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. John Harper for Drew this afternoon. We're talking about editing your own genes. Now it's one thing to get a tummy tuck. It's one thing to get plastic surgery on your nose or your earlobes. But editing your own genes to change who you are, in essence, taking the place of God. You becoming the creator. It's happening in labs. And we're on that slippery slope right now. And if you think it's something that's abstract and just happening in a lab halfway around the world, think again. And that's what we're talking about, the ethical dilemma that you and I are facing and may really face in this slippery slope as we look at our culture in 2022. Father Tad Paholchik is with us, and he is the Director of Education at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. The ultimate slippery slope would be eugenics here, because that's indeed what we're talking about. I mean, if we're editing genes, then eugenics is the next thing, right? Certainly does uh, imply that there is a temptation to say that certain types of characteristics will be desirable and others not. And that's going to inform then the kinds of genetic changes and manipulations that may end up being done on future generations. So in that sense, there is a eugenic vision. I mean, as you understand, as you recall, eugenics also has kind of the flip side meaning, which is this idea that traits of people, especially bad traits like poverty, are actually genetically caused. And therefore, if you can just eliminate the poor people exactly. uh, and don't allow them to reproduce and maybe induce direct sterilization, then you're going to deal with eugenic uh, concerns and set up a society that putatively is, is better. Now, you know, the issue with the genetics, it, it gives you more kind of ability to manipulate at the origins of the person rather than having to do it later when individuals are adults because you know, we're dealing here with questions of manipulating not only embryos, but even sperm and egg. And some of the genetic changes can be made, for example, to sperm, such that if they were then used in vitro to create an embryo, that embryo would have new characteristics uh, that it, didn't, it would not have had if you had not introduced those changes. 
Are we talking here about the next step? And and I hesitate to use the word logical, but it applies in this conversation, Father Tad, about editing your own genes. The next logical step for those who have gender confusion? Well, the uh, one of the technologies that is sometimes mentioned in the same breath as all of this is something called in vitro gametogenesis. IVG instead of IVF. We're all familiar with IVF in vitro fertilization. But IVG is a process where you create sperm or egg from a person starting with their skin cells. And it involves going through a step where you make some stem cells and then a few more manipulations to get either sperm or egg. So the idea here would be for example, that if you had uh, two women who were lesbians and they said, well, we want to try to have a child that contains genetic pieces of both of us, then uh, it might be possible using this IVG approach to produce sperm from one of them and egg from the other and proceed to do in vitro fertilization that way and create a child. So this is, uh, in a sense, you know, an a, a additional step in the logic that you're referring to. It's allowing for multiple parents. It's allowing even potentially for more than two parents, depending on the types of manipulations that are done. You can even have three parent embryos that are created. Uh, it's, again, a kind of a complicated technology that's right. involved to do that. But that's the kind of direction that potentially we move. And, you know, John, when when we look at that kind of movement into the future, you have to ask yourself, what are going to be the forces that direct this? And is it going to be, first and foremost, a concern for ethics, or is it going to be the consumer marketplace? And he who has sufficient funds will be the one who specifies how far this science goes. That's always a concern because that has been how in vitro fertilization has been largely driven mm-hmm. as a consumer phenomenon. Editing your genes, this is information that is now four years old from Pew Research. And they asked Americans, all U.S. adults, is it morally acceptable for human gene editing? 28% Pew Research, four years ago, 28% say, yeah, it's okay. 30% say it's morally unacceptable, and 40 are not sure. Now, you could talk about that 28% who say, yeah, it's morally acceptable, but that 40% is a big percentage of not sure. And then when you get into those who are highly religious, 43% are not sure. So what do we need to do, in addition to this conversation here on Relevant Radio, Father Tad, to teach those not sures, even the highly religious at 43%, to understand that what we're talking about is morally unacceptable? Well, I think that question really dovetails well with the need more broadly for sound and solid formation in science. You know, as I look back over the past two years of the pandemic, you would hear people say a lot of things like, follow the science, follow the science, you know, pay attention to the research. But the reality is that most Americans were not familiar with the science around vaccines and how they work and you know, what are the safety requirements and all the other questions. 
And we have a similar phenomenon in what you and I are talking about now, genetics, that this is an area that most people have very, very little familiarity with. They may have seen the movie Gattaca, you know, and one or two other Hollywood flicks. Um, but beyond that, not much familiarity with the area. And so I think this is a real challenge. Um, I, I don't know that there's a simple answer. I think part of the answer relies on careful and correct popularization. When you find somebody who is good at popularizing, which means explaining in layman's terms that would be what's you. really going on here, yeah, that can be very, very valuable. And uh, that's the kind of thing we, you know, as a church, I think need to be focusing on, that we find the more outstanding teachers and instructors so that uh, people can, you know, be helped in this way to understand the science that that underlies some of these ethical dilemmas. How would then you recommend possible? Yeah, I was going to say, ahead. how would you how would you recommend having that conversation? Because as we look at the list of what needs to be do, done in the church, this conversation is pretty far down the list. But it's it's important because, as I was mentioning, this is the slippery slope that just happens, and all of a sudden we're at the bottom of the slope and wonder how did we get here. Yeah, I think the question of how is a tricky one because I think. As a church, there still remain some significant gaps and lacunae in the way that we transmit the faith and in the way that we transmit moral teaching. You know, I would say another area would be in the, in the domain of human sexuality, that the church has some incredible treasures to share, but we haven't been doing a very good job of it. And people are living, you know, lives, sexually speaking, that are very, very similar to the culture around them. So the, the education piece is a big one here, and we as church have to change, I think, our pedagogical approach. Things like CCD, you know, which represent important opportunities, rare moments of contact. Uh, granted, they're not very common, but very important that we get it right and that we don't shortchange young people when we have them for such a brief period even to make that a fruitful and profitable encounter for them. So it does, you know, the parish always offers a powerful avenue to move forward in teaching and educating our Catholics, but we need a certain measure of courage and determination to do it well and to speak the fullness of what we have received from our Lord. We're pushing the boulder uphill, and the hill is relativism, isn't it? Relativism is certainly in the backdrop, and it remains a kind of perennial temptation to think that these ethical issues don't actually have objective bases on which we can, you know, nail our conclusions, but that you can have your ethics and I can have my ethics and we can all agree to just get along or all agree to just disagree kind of thing, even. I always point out to people, if that was really your approach, well, as I'm driving up to this intersection, if I happen to want to think that the light is green yeah. and don't pay attention to the objective indicators, our intersections are going to have a lot of carnage. We have to pay attention to the objective indicators in our moral lives as well. Important conversations here on Relevant Radio, the issue of making sense not only of bioethics, which Father Tad Boholchik does so well as a member of our family here on Relevant Radio, but when you hear topics such as editing our own genes, it really isn't science fiction because it's here right now, and to have that just creep into our culture 
in little bits and pieces. All of a sudden, as we were saying, it's the slippery slope and we find ourselves at the bottom of the slope. But as Catholics, we want to empower you to have those important conversations and how in this greater conversation about life to stand up for life. Father Tad Boholchik is the Director of Education of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Father Tad, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be with you as well. And speaking of life, we go live to Washington coming up in the next half hour on the Drew Mariani Show to give you a preview of the 49th annual March for Life. And our live coverage begins tomorrow with John Morales in Morning Air at 6 a.m. Central Time. And I just want to extend uh, special prayers, and we want you to extend special prayers during the Chaplet of Divine Mercy for all of the kids at Northridge Prep outside of Chicago. They're on their way to the March for Life, as many students are all across the United States and around the world convening in Washington, D.C. We'll go there coming up next right after the Chaplet of Divine Mercy that Drew prays next here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app.